This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origin, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Today, Howard reflects on Bubble.com, which was originally published on January 2nd, 2000. Here's Howard. We had all been living with the tech and internet stock rise for years at this point, you know, and uh, probably the last five years of the 90s. It was in 96 that Alan Greenspan said, are we beginning to see signs of irrational exuberance? It reached its apogee in 99, you know. I remember uh, I was on the Penn Investment Committee, and uh, one of the schools, I think, had a return of uh, 40% in its endowment that year, and its venture capital investments were up 250%. So the growth stock outperformance that year was probably the greatest it's ever been, maybe until this year. So I started to think about it, but what really moved me was when I read this book, The Devil Take the Hindmost, which I identify in the first line here. It was a chronicle of financial speculation. The South Sea bubble was one of the greatest of those. I mentioned in the last podcast that I see parallels and analogies And that's what this was. You read that at the time, and as shown on the bottom of page one and the top page two, there are all these similarities between what had been seen in the South Sea bubble 300 years earlier and what was going on in the tech bubble. And that really got me going. Now, I had to learn a lot because I'm not a technologist. So I probably worked on this for three months and then probably finished my work over the Christmas vacation and was able to get it out on the first business day of 2000. And what I like to say is that I, after 10 years, I became an overnight success with the memos. The response to the memo itself was very positive. I think the memo was well argued. But the other thing is that it was right, and it was right quickly. You know, if you write slowly, it doesn't help. But it was right within a few months, because there's an old saying in our business that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. But this was not too far ahead of its time. Other people who had blown the whistle in 96 or 97 or 98, they were too far ahead of their time. And, you know, they suffered for it. They lost money from their management. Now, this does not relate to our management because we're in the credit markets and technology historically has not been a user of the credit markets, has not been a borrower. Most tech companies are too risky to borrow any money. So this was not in our commercial wheelhouse, but it was something worth observing. What actually started me on the memo was reading the Chancellor book, Devil Take the Hindmost, and seeing commonalities between the historic behavior described in the book and the actual behavior that was taking place in real time before my eyes. So the idea of people giving up their day job to get involved in a hot sector of the market, the idea of people investing heavily in things they didn't understand and investing in things that they couldn't value and the human desire to be involved and make the easy money these things are universal throughout time and they are the characteristic of every bubble in order for things to be valued so high that their negation brings huge losses you have to have these things you know they're all components perhaps of what i was taught in high school english It's called willing suspension of disbelief. But when you get that, then you reach extremes in the market. And it'll always be so, in my opinion. One of the ways that you have to understand these phenomena is as a lottery ticket. In this instance, in particular, there were a lot of lottery tickets. Some of them turned out to be very valuable. But what were they worth as lottery tickets? The problem is, Each one had a low probability of being a winning ticket, but people were willing to pay very big prices for them. And the word I keep using is inflamed. And, you know, when you see things go up five times the first day, it's really very hard to resist the willingness to buy a lottery ticket. But we know that most of the participants in lotteries are unsuccessful. The crash of the internet stock bubble contributed to a broad crash of tech media telecom stocks, TMT, and the whole stock market 
was pulled down and the return on stocks from their 2000 high was negligible for over a decade. The return on stocks from 2000 till I think, as I recall, 2012 was uh, very poor and people were giving up on stocks. So there's this cycle uh, that when they do well, people think they're going to do well forever. And when they do poorly, people think they're going to do poorly forever. Now, the, the reverse is more true. When they do well, it sets the scene for them to do poorly. And when they do poorly, it sets the scene for them to do well. But most people extrapolate rather than understand concepts like regression to the mean. Most people think that when stocks go up, it's unmitigated good news. They don't realize that appreciation, if you flip it over, the reverse side is becoming more expensive, which has negative implications. And stock prices collapsing is the other side of getting really attractive and setting the scene for gains. So the point is that bubble thinking is thinking that a positive trend will go on forever, unmitigated, when often the reverse is true. And I think that the most important thing to bear in mind is that the hallmark of a bubble to me is when people say, this is such a good thing that there's no price too high. No price too high is really the hallmark of a bubble. There's always, or usually I should say, a germ of truth in every bubble, but it's taken too far. And people ignore limitations and of course, overprice the thing, whatever it is. I think obviously, the outperformance of the tech stocks this year and the software stocks is one of the big stories. Tech and software investors are having a great year. Anybody who doesn't have the tech and the software stocks is having a poor year. The divergence between the two groups is enormous. We're talking about established companies like Amazon and Microsoft, uh, terrific companies, well-proven over decades. That's a big difference from the TMT bubble, the internet bubble and the e-tail and so forth. But certainly the ability of one group with technology on its side and high growth prospects to inflame the passions of investors, well, that's certainly repetitive. Growth stock investing has vastly outperformed value stock investing for many years and is particularly doing so this year. Part of that is because tech stocks in particular, the uh, archetypical growth stocks, are not much affected by the economic difficulties this year. And in fact, some of them are benefited. Some of their business models have been highlighted as being particularly appropriate. Amazon with home deliveries, Netflix with streaming at home and so forth. And then the divergence in performance between those stocks and mortal companies that have been negatively affected by the pandemic and the lockdown and so forth, the dichotomy is huge. So there's a temptation to say that the growth stocks are too hot. I think it's a vast oversimplification. First of all, they are much better companies than people were backing in those days. They were highly profitable. Many of them have dominant market shares and are uh, almost impregnable. Certainly, uh, Amazon, for example, looks like a juggernaut and Microsoft and, and so forth. The other thing is that you would have to say that there's optimism built into the prices of those stocks. It's really optimism that causes bubbles, inappropriate optimism. Uh, I, I'm not saying that optimism with regard to the great tech companies is inappropriate, but you know you can't have growth stocks which are more conceptual in nature and which sell on the basis of what their future is. You can't have those soaring without a component of optimism. And what is a bubble but a rational, excessive optimism?
unjustified optimism. And uh, of course, these are by definition companies that can't be valued based on current profits or current assets. So it's conceptual and optimism based. Conceptual investing based on optimism when taken to excess is the raw material of the bubble. So, you know, there is a hint of rhyme there. Mark Twain says history does not repeat, but it does rhyme. And now here's Bubble.com by Howard Marks. The book, Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor, does an excellent job of chronicling the history of financial speculation. In doing so, it recounts the story of the South Sea Bubble and provides a backdrop against which I'd like to examine some of the events of today. The South Sea Company was formed in 1711 to help deleverage the British government by assuming some of the government's debt and paying it off with the proceeds of a stock offering. In exchange for performing this service for the crown, the company received a monopoly for trading with the Spanish colonies in South America and the exclusive right to sell slaves there. Demand for the company's stock was strong due to the expectation of great profits from these endeavors, although none ever materialized. In 1720, a speculative mania took flight, and the stock soared. Sir Isaac Newton, who was the master of the mint at the time, joined many other wealthy Englishmen in investing in the stock. It rose from £128 in January of 1720 to 1050 in June. Early in this rise, however, Newton realized the speculative nature of the boom and sold his £7,000 worth of stock. When asked about the direction of the market, he is reported to have replied, I can calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of the people. By September 1720, the bubble was punctured, and the stock price fell below £200, off 80% from its high three months earlier. It turned out, however, that despite having seen through the bubble earlier, Sir Isaac, like so many investors over the years, couldn't stand the pressure of seeing those around him make vast profits. He bought back the stock at its high and ended up losing £20,000. Not even one of the world's smartest men was immune to this tangible lesson in gravity. It's obvious from Devil Take the Hindmost that many elements of speculative behavior were present during the South Sea Bubble. I'll cite some of its passages here and point out the parallels to today that I see. The ideology of self-interest had recovered after the battering it received after the crisis of the mid-1690s. Its thesis was that private vices, avarice, prodigality, pride, and luxury produced public benefits. Sounds like the greed-is-good rationalization of the 1980s. The success of South Sea spawned talk of any number of speculative schemes, some of which was probably apocryphal. The most famous of the legendary bubble companies was that for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but no one to know what it is. I can't understand what it does, but that's okay. Just tell me the name. Or maybe the symbol's enough. Despite their lack of profits, companies like South Sea were able to finance their operations by issuing stock at higher and higher prices. The circularity inherent in the scheme made a rational calculation of the share's fair value difficult to compute. Some argued that the higher the shares rose, the more they were actually worth. Was there ever such a delusion from the beginning of the world? According to this way of computing, no person can purchase at too high a rate since his profit will increase in proportion to the price he gives. There's no such thing as too high a price if the concept is right and the ability to issue stock at rising prices will lead to profitability. Adam Anderson, a former cashier of the South Sea Company, later claimed that many purchasers of shares bought knowing that their long-term prospects were hopeless since they aimed to get rid of them in the crowded alley to others more credulous than themselves. The greater fool theory is nothing new. As Edward Ward observed in his poem, A South Sea Ballad, few men who follow reason's rules grow fat with South Sea diet. Young rattles and unthinking fools are those that flourish by it. The profits went to those unrestrained by reason or experience. Robert Digby wrote, 
The South Sea Company is continually a source of wonderment. The sole topic of conversation in England revolves around the shares of the company, which have produced vast fortunes for many people in such a short space of time. Moreover, it is to be noted that trade has completely slowed down, that more than 100 ships moored along the River Thames are for sale, and that the owners of capital prefer to speculate on shares than to work at their normal business. The name of the company was on everyone's lips. The fortunes it created were front-page news, and the average Joe was willing to give up his day job to participate. Sound familiar? I will devote the rest of this memo to what certainly seems to me to be another market bubble. Before doing so, however, I must point out a few things. First, as usual, little that I write will be original. Instead, I hope to add value by pulling together ideas from a number of sources. Second, a single word suffices to describe my recent caution regarding the stock market. Wrong. Nevertheless, I'll admit my negative bias and the fact that I have found the bears convincing and the bulls Pollyanna, and then move on to discuss the effect on the market of technology as we move into a new millennium. In short, I find the evidence of an overheated, speculative market in technology, internet and telecommunications stocks overwhelming, as are the similarities to past manias. Changing the World of course, the entire furor over technology, e-commerce, and telecom stocks stems from the company's potential to change the world. I have absolutely no doubt that these movements are revolutionizing life as we know it, or that they will leave the world almost unrecognizable from what it was only a few years ago. The challenge lies in figuring out who the winners will be and what a piece of them is really worth today. The graph, which we'll link to in the show notes, shows the stock price performance of the leading company in an industry that was thought capable of changing the world. For that reason, the stock followed the explosive price pattern that has become typical for technological innovators. Their predictions were correct. The industry did change the world, and the company was its big winner. The industry was radio. In the 1920s, it was expected to change the world, and it did. Its ability to communicate without wires created entertainment in the home, electronic advertising, and the live delivery of events. The company was RCA, and as the industry leader, its stock rose from $8 in mid-1927 to $114 in mid-1929. While part of the stock's appreciation was due to the market boom in which it shared, certainly part was also due to an overvaluation of its potential. After the onset of the Great Crash, RCA's stock fell from that high of $114 to $2.5 within three years. The Depression can be blamed for some of this decimation, but it is worth noting that even 25 years after the 1929 peak, when the Depression and World War II were well over and the post-war recovery was underway, RCA's stock had yet to get back to a third of its earlier high. The times, the industries, and the companies are certainly different today, but it makes one wonder whether investors aren't again overpaying for the ability to change the world. Similarly, a recent article in Fortune reported Warren Buffett's observation that airplanes and automobiles had been expected to change the world, and did, and almost all of the manufacturers of both are now gone. Few things have had the impact on the world that aviation did, but from its founding through 1992, the cumulative profit of the airline industry was zero. As usual, Buffett puts it as succinctly as anyone could. The key to investing is not assessing how much an industry is going to affect society or how much it will grow, but rather determining the competitive advantage of any given company and, above all, the durability of that advantage. The products or services that have wide, sustainable moats around them are the ones that deliver rewards to investors. Three years ago, everyone wanted to be Warren Buffett, or at least read books about him. Now, appearing to have missed out on the technology movement, he and his investment approach are dismissed as passé by the dot-com gang. Chapter 2 
altered lives. During the South Sea Bubble, as described before, boats were put up for sale, and people with capital shifted from being workers to being investors. In a striking parallel, the Internet commerce revolution is also changing lives. Of course, we know that thousands of Americans have become online traders, either full or part-time. Articles describe people who are trying to ride the trend of hot stocks and benefit from their momentum. But there's little indication that they have any idea what makes companies do well or stocks go up, or even what some of their companies do. The Wall Street Journal of December 7th cited an individual who has spent his full time in the prior five months trading the stock of one company, CMGI, which invests in Internet ventures. He doesn't know the CEO's name. Also striking is the effect this is having on business education and young careers. A front-page article in the New York Times of November 28th reported that applications at many business schools were flat or down. The number of Americans taking the GMAT exam was down sharply, and not insignificant numbers of MBA students were dropping out after the first year to join the hot fields. As a professor of entrepreneurship told me, all of the e-commerce claims will be staked out in the next year or two. Students can't risk staying in school and seeing someone else act on their ideas. Five years ago, the hot area for new MBAs was investment banking. Now, I hear, investment banks can't get the top students to sign up for the interviews and are having trouble meeting their recruiting goals. The pressure to move toward the high-change areas is great, and people are succumbing. Everyone in the investment profession knows, or knows of, somebody who has made hundreds of millions, or a billion, this year on a dot-com investment. One can imagine that this makes the buyout specialists who built fortunes over a lifetime feel like underachievers. Private equity firms are getting involved in companies at earlier stages, and with the dot-coms. On November 30th, a Wall Street Journal article about defections of buyout specialists to venture capital firms cited a KKR partner who had resigned to do just that. Venture capitalists and technologists, in turn, are moving to Internet firms. As a sign that it's even becoming hard for more mature technology firms to hold on to people, the CFO of Microsoft recently quit to join a fiber-optic company. Remember, Microsoft has already been public 17 years. The gold rush is over at the established firms, and the overnight fortunes have been made. Even investment bankers are in transit. On December 14th, a New York Times article on the subject was headlined, Wall Street is flush with cash, but also green with envy. A Harvard Business School professor aptly mixes his metaphors, likening the rush of executives to Internet-related ventures to a tsunami of people chasing a pot of gold. The Lure of Venture Capital I recently presented the case for distressed debt to three classes in entrepreneurial finance at the University of Chicago Graduate Business School. The response of half the students was simple. Why settle for 20 to 25% per year when you can make 100% in venture capital? Just as venture capital is attracting young business people, it is also turning heads in the investment community. One university treasurer told me his school's $29,000 investment in Yahoo via a venture fund grew to $54 million and would be more than twice that today if it hadn't been sold. Why do anything else indeed? Before we succumb to this reasoning, however, and run out to start the OCM Venture Capital Fund, we should first review the data concerning venture capital's brief history. For funds raised between 1984 and 1989, the median return to limited partners ranged from 7.5% to 15.1%. For funds raised between 1990 and 1994, it ranged from 20.4% to 29.7%. These are healthy returns, but certainly the typical VC investor enjoyed no bonanza in that period. A quarter or more of the funds raised in almost every year provided returns ranging downward from 10% to negative territory. 
It's only for funds started in the mid to late 1990s that the returns have been so eye-popping. For each vintage year, beginning in 1994, there has been at least one fund with a return above 200% per year. And yet, the median returns thus far for vintage years between 1994 and 1999 range only from 0 to 33.7%, although it can be argued that it's still early. While it's hard to settle on a typical vintage year for venture capital, 1994 is a reasonable candidate. Its funds are five years old, so there has been time to bring companies to fruition and to market. And certainly, the environment has been positive. In fact, 1994's top fund has returned 235% per year so far, and the average fund has returned 45% per year. An impressive figure. But averages can be deceiving, and this one has certainly been pulled up by the best performers. The median fund is up only 22.5% per year. Half the funds have annual returns below that, by definition, and the returns in the bottom quartile range from 6.4% to minus 13.2%. The recent years all show similar patterns although it's too early for meaningful results to be in. Phenomenal for the big winners, good on average, but certainly not universally successful yet. Having reviewed the historic data, what can we say about the future? Certainly the venture capital funds are where it's at, the toll bridge through which world-changing companies are likely to pass. Does that mean they're a good investment today? I feel strongly that no investment opportunity is so good that it can't be screwed up by the wrong relationship between supply and demand. Too much money for too few ideas can mean ruinous terms and purchase prices that are too high. To my mind, the immediate outlook for venture capital is called into question by the ardor that has been ignited by recent headline returns. Thus, the huge amount of money looking for a home in ventures the expanded amounts that VC firms are accepting in their new funds, the strengthened negotiating position of entrepreneurs relative to venture capitalists, thus the need among VC firms to compete in haste to make investments, the ease with which junior members can leave VC firms to start their own funds, the strengthened negotiating position of venture capitalists relative to their investors, and thus the ability of VC firms to raise their incentive fee percentage. In my experience, the big, low-risk profits have usually come from investments made at those times when recent results have been poor, capital is scarce, investors are reticent, and everyone says, no way. Today, great results in venture capital are in the headlines, money is everywhere, investors are emboldened, and the mantra is, of course. In this context, it's very much worth noting that in 1994, someone looking at venture funds formed from 1981 to 1992 would have seen only one vintage year with an average net return above 12%, and nine out of 12 years with single-digit average returns. Despite the lukewarm results as of that date, a few forward-looking investors were willing to commit $7.8 billion to venture capital funds, and it is they who are earning the returns we see. In 1998, on the other hand, the 200%-plus results on the top funds formed in recent years egged investors on to commit more than three times that amount, $26.1 billion. Today, one hears only that investors want to put more into venture capital, but can't get access to the most desirable funds. I leave it to you to deduce the implications for future returns. The Role of the IPO A mania within a mania has taken flight in the high-tech investment world, and it surrounds initial public offerings. In years past, new issues had to be priced to sell and companies accessing the public equity market for the first time had to hope they could get investors to pay a fair price. Now, investors are sure that buying stock on a new issue, at the price the founders are willing to sell at, is the ticket to easy money. 
And to date, it has been. It is reported that the average new issue of 1999, which on average is probably about six months old, is selling roughly 160% above its issue price for four times the average gain in the next best year. For an example, the Wall Street Journal of December 8th described the case of Akamai, which went public on October 29th at a price of $26. It closed that day at $145 for an equity market value of $13 billion. Fourteen months earlier, it could never have gotten such a reception, the journal added. It didn't exist. Akamai's price is $328 today, bringing its market capitalization to $29 billion. By the way, in the first nine months of 1999, Akamai lost $28 million on $1.3 million of sales. The ability to participate in IPOs has become a major perk. Investment banks compete with other money managers by promising wealthy individuals allocations in their IPOs. Technology companies allocate IPO shares to their customers as a way to cement business relationships. As usual, I don't think investors are thinking this through. The Akamai IPO was priced at 18% of the first day's closing price. So, either A, the founding entrepreneurs and investors sold it 82% below its fair price, and who would know better than they would, or B, the market's wrong. It may well be that issuers intentionally underprice their offerings so that the first day's rise will create the buzz that will enable, one, the companies to finance their losses and their expansion through additional stock issuance, and two, the founders to sell their remaining shares. I'm sure some of that is at work here, but how much? If the closing price of $145 was right, Akamai left almost $1 billion on the table in the IPO by selling 8 million shares at $26. Further, how much due diligence is being done on each new issue? How experienced are the people doing it? How strict are the valuation parameters they're using? How will the post-deal prices hold up when the lockup periods end and the founding entrepreneurs and venture capitalists start selling the 80 to 90% of the stock that they still own? And what will happen when the options used to attract employees and to pay service providers begin to be exercised and the shares sold? What price will supply demand dictate when the supply of stock increases five or ten times? Today, it seems companies are formed and startup financing is raised not through discussions of the company's profit potential, but with reference to the possible timing and pricing of an IPO. The recent book, The New New Thing by Michael Lewis, about the career of venture capitalist Jim Clark, Silicon Graphics, Netscape, Healthion, makes it clear that in many cases, today's entrepreneur isn't thinking idea, startup, company, as might have been the case in the past. Rather, it's idea, startup, IPO. Cashing in used to be the result of successful company building. Now, it's often the end in itself. It's the IPO that's the thing. How will the companies make money? Many of the new firms have great ideas for making money, but it's appropriate to wonder whether they'll work. How the competition in each space that's the dot-com term for a business niche, will develop, whether profits will materialize, and whether they'll be sufficient to justify today's stock prices. I don't think anyone would disagree that it's one thing to innovate and change the world, and another thing entirely to make money. Business will be different in the future, meaning that not all of the old rules will hold, on the other hand, profits come from taking in more in revenue than you pay out in expense, and I don't think that's going to change. I'll highlight herewith just three of the areas in which I have questions about profitability. First, will the Internet and dot-com companies be able to charge enough for their products to make money? Front-page articles in the New York Times, October 14th, and the Wall Street Journal, July 28th, discussed the fact that many of the Internet's offerings are free. Decades ago, merchants discovered that they could sell more if they cut prices. 
the internet firms have taken that one step further. They can move even more merchandise if they give it away. As the CEO of eGreetings Network says, charging for greeting cards was a small idea. Giving them away is a really big idea. Says a venture capitalist, it's a fact of life on the internet. People expect a lot of things for free. And if you don't give it away, some other startup will. Internet firms are giving away faxes, long-distance phone calls, music, web browsers, and even internet service itself. The marginal cost of adding another user is practically zero, says one venture capitalist. The trouble, as I see it, is that the marginal revenue is exactly zero. Obviously, these firms are giving their services away in order to build traffic, tie up market share early, and or sell advertising space. It's far from clear that profits will follow. As I read the articles mentioned above, I was reminded of a great series of jokes my father told me when I was young. I lose money on everything I sell. Then how do you stay in business? I make it up on volume. I lose money on everything I sell. Then how do you stay in business? I'm closed Sundays. I sell everything at cost. Then how do you stay in business? I buy below cost. The riddle of profitability is very much present in this area. I'm sure some firms will solve it, but far from all of them. Second, how practical are the business models of the dot-com firms? It seems like ancient history, but I seem to remember that doing business in cyberspace was going to eliminate the need for conventional advertising, and virtual inventories were expected to replace brick-and-mortar warehouses filled with merchandise. Now we read about the huge sums Amazon.com is spending on warehouses, and media advertising is sold out at high prices because the Internet firms are bidding for it so aggressively. E-toys will do business without stores and will just own warehouses. But what is a Toys R Us store other than a warehouse with the front prettied up? Webvan Group sells groceries over the Internet, saving on store costs but providing free delivery. According to the December 15th journal, however, as of September 30th, Webvan's average order size was $72, too small to absorb the costs of home delivery. For the first nine months of 1999, in fact, Webvan had a $95 million loss on revenue of just $4.2 million. Lastly, what will be the effect of competition? It will take time, and there will be big cannibalization issues, but eventually the incumbents in each area will move to defend their businesses against the e-commerce firms. Merrill Lynch bit the bullet and decided to enable customers to trade online as a response to e-trade. Albertsons and Kroger have announced that they'll mount experimental home delivery systems rather than let firms like Webvan have the grocery business. The December 17th LA Times reported that Toys R Us and Walmart had opened online shopping sites in competition with eToys. eToys stock is now off 70% from its high three months ago, wiping out $7.1 billion of market value. Dot-com companies will get there early, make inroads and drive up costs for the conventional firms, but they will face determined competition from incumbents fighting for their lives. Even among just the dot-coms, competition is bound to delay and limit profitability. Most of today's e-commerce companies can, at best, boast of early entry and leading market share, the so-called first-mover advantage. Rarely is there patent protection, meaningful product differentiation, or other substantial barriers to entry. The companies can't count on brand loyalty because it's all just about low price. There will always be someone waiting in the wings to cut price, perhaps to zero, for market share. And given the ease of gathering information on the web, consumers will always be able to immediately find the lowest price. Location won't matter, because in cyberspace, everyone is everywhere. I think factors like these are likely to render profitability elusive and transitory. What are the companies worth? Eventually, this is what it comes down to. 
It's not enough to buy a share in a good idea or even a good business. You must buy it at a reasonable or hopefully a bargain price. Vast amounts of ink have been devoted to the valuations being put on the new companies. For the New York Times' time capsule, David Letterman compiled a list of the top 10 things people in the year 3000 should know about us. As a sign of the times, he included, If you wanted a billion dollars, all you had to do was think of a word and add .com. Priceline.com, which auctions off discount air tickets, September quarter sales of $152 million, net loss of $102 million, has a market capitalization of $7.5 billion, while United and Continental Airlines, $7.1 billion sales, $469 million earnings, are worth a combined $7.3 billion. Webvan Group, which started up in business in 1999, had sales of $3.8 million and a $350,000 profit in the September quarter. The stock market currently values it at $7.3 billion. On December 9th, VA Linux went public at $30 and soared 698% that day to $239 for a market value of $9.5 billion half that of Apple. To that date, the company's 1999 sales were $17.7 million, and it had lost $14.5 million, versus Apple's profit of $600 million in the most recent 12 months. VA Linux broke the record for an opening day rise. It had been held since November 1998 by TheGlobe.com, whose stock rose 606% on the first day, from $4.5 to almost $32. Now it's at $8. Among non-internet tech companies, Yahoo is worth $119 billion, more than General Motors and Ford together. At the current stock price of $432, its P-to-E ratio on 1999 estimated earnings is just over 1000 America Online trades at almost 250 times projected earnings for the June year currently underway, and Cisco trades above 100 times. Charles Schwab, the apparent winner among brokers in the new era, trades at 54 times estimated 1999 earnings, triple the multiple for Goldman Sachs. According to Barron's, the price-to-earnings ratio of the Nasdaq crossed 170 in November and may have reached 200 at year-end. And that's the average. An analysis by Sanford Bernstein shows that on September 30th, you could have bought America Online and Microsoft for $625 billion and gotten $25 billion of sales and $7 billion of earnings. Alternatively, for $635 billion, you could have bought 70 industrial, financial, transportation, and utility companies, including Bank of America, Chubb, Federated Department Stores, Lytton, Philip Morris, Ryder, and Whirlpool, and gotten $747 billion of sales and $43 billion of earnings. The future certainly looks better for AOL and Microsoft than for those other companies, but does the differential warrant a P-to-E ratio six times as high? 89 versus 15? And that's for established companies. Because the price-to-earnings ratios of Internet companies are so outlandish, usually negative, one may be forced to look to the price-to-sales ratio in order to speak about valuation. Red Hat, for example, sells at about 1,000 times its annualized revenues in the August quarter. Many of the Internet and tech companies are just concepts, and their stocks have truly slipped devaluation moorings. Under these unusual circumstances, the journal wrote on December 10th, stock valuations take on an unusually large importance in gauging a business's performance. In other words, in the absence of other signs, people must look to the share price for an indication of how the company is doing. Isn't that backwards? In the old days, investors figured out how the business was doing and then set the share price. In this valuation parameter vacuum, a lottery ticket mentality seems to govern the purchase decision. 
the model for investments in the tech and dot-com companies isn't the likelihood of a 20% or 30% annual return based on projected earnings and P-to-E ratios, but a shot at a 1,000% gain based on a concept. The pitch might be, we're looking for first-round financing for a company valued at $30 million that we think we can IPO in two years at $2 billion. Or maybe it's, the IPO will be priced at $20. It may end the day at $100 and be at $200 in six months. Would you play? Could you stand the risk of saying no and being wrong? The pressure to buy can be immense. There have always been ideas, stocks, and IPOs that produced great profits. Yet the pressure to participate wasn't as great as it is today because in the past, the winners made millions, not billions, and it took years, not months. The upside in the deals that have worked so far has been 100 to 1, give or take a zero. With that kind of potential, A, the upside becomes irresistible, and B, it doesn't take a very high probability of success to justify the investment. I have said in the past that while the market is usually driven by fear and greed, sometimes the strongest motivator is the fear of missing out. Never was that as true as today. This only intensifies the pressure to join in and crawl further out on that limb of risk. With broader relevance than just the dot-com stocks, the relative performance chart, which we'll link to in the show notes from Barron's of September 27th, already quite outdated, shows two things. One, over the last two decades, technology stocks have had periods of both underperformance and overperformance relative to the large-cap universe. And two, the recent outperformance is unparalleled, even in this bullish period. Nothing in this chart suggests that it'll be easy money in technology from here. As Alan Abelson wrote when he ran the graph, our reservation here is that A, technology, like everything else in life, is cyclical, and B, there's something goofy about the price of a stock discounting as much as a century of earnings for a company in a field where change is the only constant and where the pace of change is constantly quickening. In September, Steve Ballmer, president of Microsoft, said he thought tech stocks were overvalued. The stocks are much higher today, and his own is up more than 20%. Whose opinion matters? Is there a price that's too high? Barton Biggs, chairman of Morgan Stanley Dean Witter Asset Management, is a well-respected observer who has been somewhat cautionary to date, and wrong. His November 29th strategy piece was without equivocation. I'll let him sum up. The technology, internet, and telecommunication craze has gone parabolic in what is one of the great, if not the greatest, manias of all time. The history of manias is that they have almost always been solidly based on revolutionary developments that eventually change the world. Without fail, the bubble stage of these crazes ends in tears and massive wealth destruction. Many of the professional investors involved in these areas know that what is going on today is madness. However, they argue that the right tactic is to stay invested as long as the price momentum is up. When momentum begins to ebb, they will sell their positions and escape the carnage. Since they have very large positions, and since they all follow the same momentum, I suspect they are deluded in thinking they will be able to get out in time, because all other momentum investors will be doing the same thing. I am convinced that a few essential lessons are involved here. 1. The positives behind stocks can be genuine and still produce losses if you overpay for them. 2. Those positives and the massive profits that seemingly everyone else is enjoying can eventually cause those who have resisted participating to capitulate. 3. A top in a stock, group, or market occurs when the last holdout who will become a buyer does so. The timing is often unrelated to fundamental developments. 4. Prices are too high is far from synonymous with the next move will be downward. Things can be overpriced and stay that way for a long time, or become far more so. 5. Eventually, though, valuation has to matter. 
To say technology, internet, and telecommunications stocks are too high and about to decline is comparable today to standing in front of a freight train. To say they have benefited from a boom of colossal proportions and should be examined very skeptically is something I feel I owe you. January 2nd, 2000 P.S. The apocalyptic view of the current situation states that the world economy is dependent on the prosperity of the United States. The prosperity of the United States is based on the health of its stock market. The performance of the stock market is being driven by gains in a relatively small number of tech, internet, and telecommunications stocks. And therefore, when the inevitable correction comes in those few stocks, the ramifications will be worldwide. No one knows the extent to which this hypothesis will be proved correct. The column from the New York Times of January 1st, 2000, which we'll link to in the show notes, presents a more benign and enjoyable view. January 2nd, 2000. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Legal information and disclosures. This memorandum expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This memorandum is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This memorandum, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.